This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Sherry Turkle is a woman whose life includes a myriad of dimensions and not a few ironies. There is the woman who has a master's and a doctorate from Harvard in the fields of sociology and personality psychology, the first woman to appear on the cover of Wired magazine, the featured commentator on every major outlet, the woman who is a recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim and Rockefeller Foundations, and the founding director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. And despite being the pioneer in the study of technology as a culture and its potential for damage to our lives and relationships, she is a tenured professor. She is a tenured professor at that bastion of technology, MIT. And now, after writing nine best-selling books on psychology, technology, and conversation. She is now a woman sharing intimate personal details, secrets, and the parts of her journey from post-World War II Brooklyn to the Rockaways. Quite a journey, quite a memoir, filled with humility, evocative details about a lost time and place, and ultimately about the profound ramifications of having parents who are incapable of loving, or despite their love, are struggling with their own disappointments and aspirations, told with affection, candor, and a deep sense of humanity. The Empathy Diaries is a gripping memoir of an extraordinary life in our times. Professor Turkle, welcome to Just the Right Book. My pleasure to be here. So uh, Sherry, you grew up in a time and a place that many of us look at with um, nostalgia or affection, and your life had many of those elements, yet it was not simply of of its error. How would you describe what was typical Um, of your upbringing, and what contributed to your nonetheless feeling like an outsider? That's such a great question because it, it makes the point of the empathy diaries that things on the surface are things on the surface, and then there's what's beneath the surface. Because on the surface, I was like Brooklyn Jewish normal. Right. I roller skated. I mean, there's a picture in the book of me, you know, on literally, you know, on roller skates. I stood on the temple steps on Rosh Hashanah, like all the other families, you, you know. Went to Rockaways. I went to Far Rockaway for the for the holidays, um, and yet uh, the the life of my family was filled with secrets. Uh, my mom had been married to my father, and left him when I was one and I was not, and divorced him and went back to live with her parents, I was not allowed to say my father's name. I did not know my father's name. I first saw my name. I first saw my name, which is Sherry Zimmerman, written out in a children's book 
that I found in a closet above my grandparents' kitchen table that I called the memory closet when I was three years old. And it was like inscribed to Sherry Zimmerman. And I was like, I, I, I knew what it was. And I knew to hide the book because it was taboo. I, I, I was a child without a name because he was erased. I found a picture of him in which literally his head was cut out. And I was, when my mother remarried to Milton Turkle, I was told that my name would now be Turkle, even though by this point at school, I had to sign my name legally as Sherry Zimmerman. And when I came home, I had to lock up my papers so that nobody would know my true family name. It was like, I, I lived a life like a double agent. So, so Sherry, the, were you nervous? In, so you literally went by Sherry Zimmerman. Yes, in school. And were you like nervous that somebody would find out? Did you? Oh, yes. Because my mother would be outed. It was my mother who wanted to hide the fact of her previous marriage. My mother wanted to hide the fact of this previous marriage and pretend that she had never married and that I was one family in this one big family in this family of Turkles. As yeah. though this was a, a, a crime, a, a sin. As though I was, I was a sin. Yeah. And to say that I was nervous was, uh, is, is very, Roxanne, I like that. That's very discreet. I was definitely nervous because the one time I did it, I remember at a Girl Scout meeting, somebody asked me to introduce myself and I said, Sherry Zimmerman. And, and you could see my mother did not know what to do. I had mm -hmm. outed her and it was, it was terrible. It was a terrible situation. And, you know, to, to root us in the part of it that was typical. Yeah. Um, describe, I mean, even where you, when you went to the Rockaways, you were with your grandparents. Right. And like, even describe what the setup was, what was there, like where you slept and what you did during the day. And especially share with us the image of your grandfather. Yes. And you taking walks and having conversations that seemed almost impossible for somebody <laughs> to be having with their grandfather. Share with us some of that because, you know, it's still sticking in my head. Right. After I read it. Right. Well, my, you know, it was so funny, you know, my, there's a limit to how much you can put in a book. And I decided that um, I would, for each major character, I would choose a conversation and a story mm -hmm. that completely captured them in my mind that would, that would really communicate to the reader who they were. And for my grandfather, and maybe this is the one that's sticking in your head, I chose a conversation in which he is describing to me how I should not have a Christmas tree. <laughs> that ever. Anything ever, in other words, anything else, but never a Christmas tree. And he's trying to explain to me that, you know, that, 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 that these beautiful things that, that Jews want to have, these beautiful Christian things are, are not fashion accessories. 
that people have died for them, that, 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 that they mean something. And this was, this was a man who was not practicing. He, his, his, his Yom Kippur celebration as he and I would sit holding hands in Brooklyn and listen to Jan Pierce, the great cantor, sing Kol Nidra on a, on a, a, a turn, on a record, on a turntable. And that's what we did for, for Yom Kippur. We yeah. sat together and listened to it. So it. It wasn't a man of tremendous religious practice, but his, that is what our, our, our conversations were about, where they were, they were about, you know, kind of his brothers who had changed their name from Bonowitz to Bonner and how that hurt him, but how he understood with sadness what it took to get ahead in America. So that was the conversation I chose for him. And the story that I chose for him that sticks with me, so maybe it sticks with you, is that he, he had a kind of impotent rage that yeah. he had not been allowed. He was a brilliant man and he had not been allowed to succeed. And so when he took me for a malted and the man in the malted store let the malted spill and the malted, the man tried to put the malted back in the glass and give it to me. He lunged for this guy and he was gonna kill him. And I was like at, at, at four years old, I'm trying to like get my grandfather away from the man and the other guy's trying too. And I realized later that this, that this, that this rage and protectiveness of me was really his feeling so not able to really protect his family and take care of his family kind of yeah. in the larger world. After the emotionally draining year we all endured in 2020, there are positive things on the horizon in 2021. It's time to take what we learned in 2020 and start heading in a new direction. That's why instead of just celebrating a month of mental health awareness, it should be our priority all year long. Take the first step with online therapy. I wholeheartedly recommend Talkspace for therapy. You can sign up online and start therapy the same day as you sign up. You can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. So it's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions from the comfort of your home. Talkspace lets you send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the Talkspace platform 24-7. With Talkspace, you set goals with your therapist and they hold you accountable and make sure you're really progressing. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and be a guiding light. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7, and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. Talkspace is secure and private, using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information and complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. As a listener of the Just Right Book podcast, you'll get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and make sure to use the code JustTheRightBook to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's once again, JustTheRightBook and Talkspace.com. Now, back to the show. I was struck by... You know, what was true then and is true now for others, that there was your grandfather who had enormous curiosity 
a healthy dose of intellectual capacity, yet his job ended up being for decades, a manager at, at a theater. And you can understand then and now how that dichotomy, that inability to have your own natural skills yes. recognized and put to use would be enraging. Yes, he was always angry. This man, he, 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 yeah. he, he was always angry. And the only people that he knew to be angry at were the women in his family who served him. And, you know, one of the, 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 the empathy diaries, does, empathy doesn't mean that you approve. Empathy means you understand. And, and I, my grandfather is the first example, I think, of this in the book. I adored my grandfather. Yeah. I, I understood my grandfather but he was a tyrant. He was a tyrant and he was not nice mm. to his children. He was, I mean, by the time I was around, he was nicer to me, but he was not an, you know, he, he wasn't a conventionally kind or nice person because of this terrible anger and frustration. But I understood where that anger came from. And, and, and to, the same, to the same point about understanding, your mother, created this fiction that it was your job to maintain. Yes. He was aspirational for the kind of life that um, your family would have. And she thought marrying Milton might elevate them. They moved to the fancier, you moved, for, you know, from to a fancier neighborhood. Yeah. Um, in, in Brooklyn, yet did you come to understand her, despite the fact that what she created for you was in many ways an incredibly lonely life in order to preserve everything that she needed kept secret. Yes. You know, writing this book helped me come closer and understanding her. Mm -hmm. Because in writing this book, I saw how she learned, for example, uh, that I might be shunned as the child of a man who had a kind of mental illness and in her Jewish community be treated as unmarriageable if anyone knew right. about him. So she thought she was protecting you. She thought... That had never occurred to me in a, mil in a million years until okay. I began the research for this book. In this book, I, in doing the research for this book, um, well, I met my father and I realized how she came to leave him. She found him doing experiments on me. Yeah. And, she, and she took some A&P bags and she put some diapers in and she put some clothes in and she called her sister and she went home to her, to her family. I, I would never have known that. Right. And that, so in, in finding my father, I lost my fantasy of my father mm -hmm. and I found her as she, as she was in her anxieties and in her fears. And of course she had no... You know, there was no community to turn to. There was no, 
she she needed to she felt she needed to cover this up and sherry she died when you were quite young you were 18 or 19 and yes she was 48 or 9 she was 48 yeah do you think she ever wanted to try to explain to you what she did do you think when i mean you say you figured this out now when you were writing the book when she was well, I'm going to take a step back because she developed cancer and she kept it from you. Yes. And yet you ultimately found out only when she was in the hospital dying. So to sort of reconstruct that question, do you think when you had that time with her in the hospital, which was a matter of days, days that you or she came to an understanding of what your relationship was about or not about? In the weeks, in the, in the Christmas vacation before she died, much of this book thematically is things we know that we don't know that we know. Because- yeah. If you had asked me, do you know your mother is dying? I would have said, no, I knew nothing. Mm -hmm. But I truly explore in this book what I knew unconsciously or semi-consciously and couldn't admit to myself. I call it willful blindness. Willful blindness. I think that's good because I don't think it was deep enough to be really unconscious because when I found out and I described the scene in the hospital, the just dramatic scene where the doctor tells me my, mo my mother has 10 days to live. And, I, and I, I'm shocked. Part of me is not shocked. Mm -hmm. And I've had to deal with that all my life and really come to terms with that part of me that was not shocked. Yeah. And I think that in the Christmas vacation before the January during which she died, when I lay in my childhood bed with her and we watched movies together when she was so sick, we watched this movie, North to Alaska, with Capuchin and over and over and over again and ate my grandmother's chicken soup and just sat and talked and talked about her life and my life and my school and what she hoped for me and loved me. I feel we came to a, a closeness where something became knitted together. Mm -hmm. And we slept like lovers, you know, spoons, you know, I, I, that yeah. after she died, I realized that she, we had achieved an intimacy that she wanted and that she knew would sustain me. Yeah. And, and I, you loved and each other. we truly loved each other. And yeah. I, I came to understand how she had tried to protect me and how the ultimate protection was if she had told me that she had cancer, I would not have gone to Radcliffe. Mm -hmm. I, my dream from when I was in junior high school and, and John F. Kennedy was president and he went to Harvard. I wanted, I wanted to go to Harvard. I wrote to Harvard and they said, we can't take you. You're a girl. Go to Radcliffe. So, <laughs> so I wrote away to Radcliffe. I said, can I come to Radcliffe? And I said, well, come at, you know, apply it when you're finished with high school. So I told my mother, I'm going to Radcliffe. You know, that's what I want to do. And she said, so, Terry, well, I, want to, 
I want to take two things. I want and to- she never, you know, she encouraged me in that. In other words, she didn't say, no, you can't, we're poor, you know, I'm sick. She, go, do it. So that is how she didn't hold me back was by not telling me about her death, but somehow letting me know. Sherry, so that, that, um, th- that information uh, brings to mind two things uh, in the book that I wanted to ask you about. One is w- when we're jumping ahead a little bit, but it's so appropriate to uh, what you're talking about. When your first marriage to Seymour was on the rocks, you used a term that you chose marriage over scrutiny. Yes, I did. To me was reminiscent of choosing to have willful blindness in other circumstances in your life, including your mother's cancer. Yes. Well, my mother's daughter. Yeah. Well, also, 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 it was, I was being my mother's daughter in another way. Um, And of course, I also admit to the reader that I had two psychoanalyses after this. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't let it rest. Um, But um, I, my mother, when, because she needed to bend reality to her, to her way. Yeah. Um, she uh, elided certain realities. She, she didn't, like you say, she didn't look at certain things or she, she, she let her, her glance fade off certain things that didn't correspond to what she needed to see. Yeah. And I was, I was deeply in love. I mean, one of the things that, you know, people say, well, why did you wait to write this book? And I, I, I really in humility have to say I waited to write the book until I was in an emotional state where I could write lovingly of everybody, every, of, of all the characters in the book. In other words, that doesn't mean I like all of them. I mean, but I can write, I can, I can summon the love that I felt for all of them. I don't need to approve of all of them, but I can evoke the love that I felt for all of them. And I was deeply in love with Seymour Peppard. And I think when you read those chapters about my- You know that. You know that. And I think that's fair that I I don't think it would have been right to write a book in which I'm just saying, oh, and then I married a a kind of womanizing guy. You know, I mean, no, I I fell in love with somebody. and, And I think what's interesting about that relationship is I was gonna marry that man. And that, that, those chapters will speak to every woman who has just fallen in love and who just says, I am going to marry that man. Uh, that is going to happen. And you know, <laughs> Sherry, Sherry, the thing that, the thing that I, I um, thought that you did in, in many of the uh, people that you talk about in the book, particularly in your family, that what I came away with is understanding the complexity, right? We're, n- we're, we're humans. We're not, we're not, right. most of us are not all good. 
And most of us are not all bad. So I think when you talk about your grandfather or Seymour or your mother, um, Mildred goes in a whole other category that I wanna to come to. I think you successfully do that, but I wonder, did you worry about how anybody in the book might view what you write, either your half siblings or Seymour's daughter, or did did you give them manuscripts to read? Did you? Yes. And what was their rea any of their reactions? Uh, well, Seymour's daughter had some corrections. And whenever she had a correction, I accepted her correction. My basic rule was to um, accept any correction. The corrections were small. I mean, any significant mm. uh, correction I took. Right. Uh, any small angry? correction. Any, I mean, I, I basically, any small correction I took. Sherry, anybody angry? Her? Um, anybody angry? I think, um, not that I know. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, um, not that I know. I think there, there, were, there were chances to, I think people appreciated the chance to change things. Uh, people appreciated the chance to, to not have their names used. Uh, people appreciated, I gave people a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, people appreciated, um, I mean, this is not a, a how-to tell-all, you know, this is the, no. the point of this book is not, you know, the point of this book is not to, and then also I, it's not, I don't say anything, you know, many people said, well, why don't you tell the story of your sister and brother? Because it's not about them. People say what happened to them. It's not about them. You know, I think they appreciated that I don't really, I say that the relationship with them was really cut off by my father. Right. And it became cordial. It became cordial because they re my stepfather really took them out of my life. Yeah. I mean, ripped them from I mean he them, you he, from the house after your mother. He ripped me he he ripped he pulled me out of the house and he ripped them from my life. So you know I mean I, I I've done we've all done things to um try to keep things cordial but I think that he he put us in different families. Yeah. But I really tried to not make this book about you know my interpretations of them or what happened to them or I mean, I tried to circumvent the book to really be as much as possible my story. Um, Sherry, one of the things that um, does that I, does that answer your? It, uh, it does. Yeah, yes. I mean, yes, it absolutely does. It makes sense. I mean, first of all, it's your book. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you can abuse. No, but some people say it's my book, and I, you know, you were there, and I'll just, you know say whatever I want to say, you know, you were in my life. And I mean, I had a pretty, I, tr you know, I had a pretty narrow focus. I mean, I tried to. It lived up to your title. It, it lived up to your title, which is Thank what you. I, uh, I was struck by that, it, you know, like we were talking about a few minutes, minutes ago, I had a real sense that you had empathy and understanding for 
anybody in the book, despite what what are any of our frailties. Yeah. I think and, that I I think I think I think I had to but I think I had to do the I think I had to do the work to, to get, get there. there. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the messages of the book is that the 19-year-old me or the 26-year-old me or the 30-year-old me could not have or the 40-year-old me could not have written this book. I mean it's actually I tell I I tell a story in the book that I think is hilarious. I don't know if other people find it hilarious or sad. But I'm, when I wrote The Second Self, which was kind of my first bestseller book about people and computers, it's 1984. Mm. I have not met my father. I have kept my mother's secret. My, sis, my half-sister and brother do not know yet about Charles Zimmerman. And an Esquire magazine reporter comes to interview me because I'm on the cover of Esquire magazine as one of the 40 young people under 40 who are changing the nation. And he says to me, he says, you know, in the, in the, in, in the um, acknowledgements to the second self, you thank your mother and Mildred Bonowitz and, 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 uh, and Harriet Turkle and, and your mother and, and your grandmother and your aunt. And well, what about your father? Who's your father? And I say to him, and I'm the one with the brand, the thought and feeling go together, right? There's, a, there's, right. No, you, there's no thought without feeling. And it, I said, you can't talk to me about my personal life. I only discuss my professional world. This is, that, that question is completely out of bounds. He put that in the article. <laughs> he put that in the article. <laughs> he says, whoa, you know, for a lady who's trying to sell, whose whole sales pitch is the thought and feeling go together, there's one crazy lady, you know. <laughs> so, and I, I, I saw him retreating. I knew he was going to really take a swipe of me, that my puff piece in Esquire magazine was not going to be a puff piece. And I said to myself, it ends here. Mm. It ends here. And I call my, my, my step, my half-sister and brother, and I, tell, and I tell them, and I call Milton Turkle, and I tell him, and I call a detective. <laughs> you know? And in a sense, that is the origin story for this book. That yeah. I that I had a story that I'm going, and I that's when I begin my quest for my father. And it took a long time, but that's when I start to find him. You know, I, I was gonna I was gonna bring up that story later. So thank you <laughs> for bringing it up. It was interesting to me that your mother, who would never allow you to bring up anything that would uh, relate to finances, and that would include you wanting to go to Hebrew school during the week as well on as on Sunday, or buying yeah. Rosh Hashanah tickets, you know, anything. That, yet you um, see. John F. Kennedy getting elected and you decide on Harvard and then Radcliffe. And your mother supported that idea, yet it was at odds with her concern about money. And I'm curious, did you realize how much ambition that it would take to make that happen? I was just, you know, it's a little bit like I met Seymour Papert. I thought he was a little nutty. 
Yeah. I was madly in love with him. I was going to marry him. I, every moment I spent in his presence, I was happy in some, in some way that reminded me of Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy. I don't know. <laughs> so it's like, he was an exciting. It was exciting. It was, he was exciting. Uh, you know, it was that kind of, you know, I, you know, just kind of like my mother, you know, I, the, that, that part of my mother that just put on blinders and, you know, I wanted this in my life. Um, I think it was the same. I was going to go to Radcliffe mm. and I read that there were fellow scholars that I, one thing I knew is that I did know that in order to get into, um, and this is very sad. I mean, it's, uh, I, you know, there's, I don't want, I, my book has an undertow of sadness because um, in order to get these things, you know, I'm laughing about the Seymour thing because there is something funny about this kind of, uh, I mean, I basically was in psychoanalysis and lying to my analyst about all the outrageous things that Seymour was doing in order to, <laughs> in order to, in order to, kind of keep staying in psychoanalysis and, and marry him. And then finally I thought, whoa, you know, this is really not the analytic rule to lie to your analyst so that your analyst doesn't know that your husband-to-be is not appropriate. So I, I quit the analysis until essentially went back into analysis after the marriage was over. Anyway, to get back to your question, um, I, um, uh, I knew that I had to be valedictorian of every school I was in. In the, I was told by my, my guidance counselor that to get through into Radcliffe, I would have to be valedictorian every time I was in, you know, in junior high and high school. And um, I was, but that was actually a lot of work and a lot of, uh, um, it, 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 it was a lot of memorizing things. I, you know, a lot of memorizing review books to get a hundred percent on every test. It was not a creative, um, it gave me a high school experience that was not creative and, um, interesting and, uh, what, what it should have been. And, um, I, I think that was very sad because I really didn't dis discover that I was a creative um, thinker uh, and a worthy thinker until I was out of that system. And I think that was very sad. And I think that's an important educational lesson there too. Um, and, and you know, the other thing that was striking is, you know, a lot of your description of Radcliffe, the late 60s, clothes being included or not included, reminded me of an incident um, that I had that, that touches on an incident that you had when I went to Smith to, for an interview. I didn't go to Smith for the reason I'm gonna tell you. I went to Smith in the fall of 66 and I remember exactly what the woman was wearing, her sort of New Englandy kind of suit with a New Englandy kind of pin. And my father came with me and my father had a very heavy Hungarian accent and was a baker. Mm -hmm. 
and she was so disrespectful to him. And he became unnaturally obsequious, not wanting to risk my not getting into school, that I was appalled at the idea that I would ever go to, I, I wouldn't want to go to that school that would treat my father that way. And it's not unlike the experience that you describe of, of going there. Yes. And actually I tell a story that's the mirror image of your story. May I tell my story? Sure. I was angry at my mother for keeping my father from me. And it came out in tiny cruelties because I loved her, but I was so angry that she wouldn't talk to me about my father. And she took me to my Radcliffe interview. And it was such a big deal for her because really together we had done this. She had allowed it. She had gotten over her fears. My family was so fearful of the outside world. They, were, they weren't Holocaust victims, they, but they were the, the shadow of the Holocaust was so heavy on my family. I describe a story where when I, when I was like the designated adult, when somebody would come to the house to fix something, my grandmother would sit on the couch with, 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 her, with her old dress holding her purse. My grandfather would, would put on a suit. And I didn't realize till later that it was, it was almost like they were waiting to be taken. I mean, it was, there was such tension about any stranger in the house. And my mother had gotten over all of that to let me go away to college. And the, we come out of the interview and in my anxiety, as we were interviewed by a woman very similar to the woman you describe. I wonder if she had the same suit. <laughs> She probably had the same suit, but I remember she had this little circle pin. And That's I, you know, what this woman had. <laughs> they, shopped, they shopped in Talbots. They shopped in Talbots. She had a round collared wool suit. <laughs> they shopped in Talbots. How can I tell you? They had these special places. Anyway, and I, in my anxiety, I say to my mother, who was, who was wearing this absolutely outrageous hotel, um, um, hairdo from King's Highway, this place she went, Don's. All bouffant. Oh, my God. It was, it was, it was, it was, it came down and then it came up and then it came down. It was like, it was like up and then out and then down and it was at Did night. It flip at the bottom? But no, we could, yes, but it, it, it flipped here out. Then it came in. Oh, that's right. I know, I know what you mean. <laughs> I know what you mean. And it was secured. And she she slept she 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 slept she slept sitting up, and she had a row of steel clips. And anyway, I say to her, who only wanted to share with with me this moment of hope and aspiration and whatever this meant, and and I say to her, "Mommy, you had a steel clip in your hair during the interview." Mm. It was the and I say in the book. If I had one do-over in life, that would be my do-over. And I've it. done some, I've done, you know, I was, I've had some, I'm not, I haven't done bad things. I haven't stolen anything or not, <laughs> I haven't killed anybody. But if that was so, it was so cruel. And it was coming out of this place of why isn't my father here? 
Why can't I say, I wish daddy were here? Why don't I know who daddy is? Yeah. And, and it, and, but it's the, it's the same, it's the, it's the flip side of your story that your reaction was to embrace your father. And my reaction was to say, mommy, you, 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 I'm angry at you for what you didn't give me. And it wasn't until later that I embraced her. It took me time. And, you know, Sherry, in reading the book, I mean, this, this is probably pop psychology because as opposed to you, I don't have a doctorate in psychology. Um, it, it's not hard to make the leap that the way you ended up having to have an interior and exterior life aligns with the work that you ended up doing where social media is creating interior and exterior lives. Do you think that's what got you interested in the area or is that just a coincidence? No, what I I think you're saying is that, you know, I think that I was prepared to see what social media could accomplish. Right. In other words, I was, it wasn't just that I had, extremely good training as a psychologist, as an ethnographer, I had psychoanalytic training. I'd, it wasn't just that I was, you know, intellectually and psychologically prepared, but I was deeply emotionally prepared to see, see that, to see that just as I was really prepared to see that people, you know, I went, when I went to France, I drop, I, you know, for people who haven't read the book, I you didn't you should. even get to your Paris time. Right. I, I, I drop out of school because my stepfather, when, when my mother dies, my stepfather doesn't sign the parents' confidential statement. I lose my scholarship. So I drop out of school and I drop out of Radcliffe and, I, and my grandparents don't want me around my stepfather. Uh, and I and they give me one of those Icelandic airlines tickets to go to Paris, <laughs> you know, which, which really don't go to Paris. They go to Luxembourg and then you take a, you, know, you take a bus to Paris. Anyway, um, I ended up in Paris being, as a cleaning lady. And um, uh, this, in this life as a cleaning lady, I sort of developed this otherness because they, they, they didn't even call me by my name there. They called me Le Portuguese because all the other cleaning ladies were Portuguese. And so they called me Le Portuguese. So I didn't even have a name there. <laughs> it's like, I was just like a generic. Um, but again, that, that sense of otherness, I was trained in marginality. And I, I talk about French Sherry, how in France, speaking the French language, I developed a kind of personality that was much tougher and less vulnerable than American Sherry, who was much more wounded and and vulnerable. And so when I came back and when I saw social media where people were developing avatars, I said, I know what that is. That's like French Sherry. Yeah. French Sherry was an avatar, you know, little... You know, with a little, you know, yeah. you know, just say you know, just like a whole, you know, like people develop a different, different 
being or sort of, you know, and friend Sherry, friend Sherry didn't have a choice. My grandmother wasn't there. My grand, my aunt, you know, nobody was there. I was really alone. And Sherry, speaking of marginality um, and a little bit we're bouncing around because there's so much in the book we're not even touching on. Um, I mean, it's worth it just to hear about the clothes from the 60s, but... But speaking of one of the one of the reviewers said that I was very good on clothes and food. That my food writing is sublime. So it was the clothes, (laughs) the Marimekko dresses, the Fred Braun shoes. I I was right there with you. But one of the MIT story. I mean, we haven't even gotten to all your um, landmark work at MIT, but. I was struck by a story. Steve Jobs comes to MIT in the late 70s, like 77 or so. And you're a professor at MIT doing research into this work. And you are not invited to the meeting with Jobs on campus, but you're given the goddamn dinner party. To do, to, 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 to cook. To cook for everybody coming. So it, now I'm putting my head in the late 70s. I, you know, we're the same age. And so did you think that was okay or normal? Were you angry then? Or are you angry now? Or was it just what it was? Well, I'm so glad you bring this up. Because if you read that part of the book, you will see that I tell that story, which is that I was asked to make dinner for Steve Jobs and all the jobs acolytes in my apartment so at by that point I'm a professor I'm not a research assistant I'm not a helper I'm not a I'm a professor and um I'm asked to make a vegetarian dinner um already a harder thing to do (laughs) (laughs) already outside my group um uh I, 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 I execute. Everybody comes over. Steve Jobs comes over. Um, and in fact, the story is, is that Steve Jobs looks at the food that I've spent two days cleaning my apartment. Uh, you know, I, may, I was making like $12,000 a year as an assistant professor at MIT. Looks at the food, uh, says, this is not my kind of vegetarian and leaves. So I, I wasn't even, I was such a failure as an MIT professor, I couldn't even like- <laughs> Get the right vegetarian. Get the right vegetarian <laughs> things. I think at the time he was like a fruititarian or whatever. I mean, he was, anyway, it was the wrong vegetarian. But what's interesting about that story is not just that I thought it was completely natural that I would be asked to make dinner. Although actually I was the one who was like onto what Steve Jobs was doing because I was like into the- Exactly. Right, it, I mean, he and I had, I, I don't want to say that I was like Steve Jobs, but I, we had the same insight. Oh, I mean, we had the same, we had, we really had the same insight about the computer as an intimate machine and not just a tool. Everybody else was saying the computer is just a tool. And he and I were saying, no, the computer is an intimate machine you know, think different. And Mm -hmm. I was saying, I'm studying how the computer is making people think different. He's exactly right. It is. It is a tool that makes people think different. 
at the t- not only did I completely think it was natural that I not be invited to talk to him, but as I wrote the book and I put myself back in my, my method was I wrote every chapter putting myself back into my frame of mind at the time. So in the book, there is not even a critique. No. No. And, and, it, and I, as the book is in what's called blues, which is like the last stage where you're allowed only to change like a comma or an apostrophe, I call my wonderful editor, Ginny Smith at, at Penguin. And I say, Ginny, I, 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 I know I'm only allowed to change apostrophes. Look at the Steve Jobs paragraph. Is there any, do you see that I'm showing no consciousness that there's like a problem here? And this is a book that she and I have like read to get, I mean, together apart with, with another wonderful editor, Carolyn Sidney, we have read this book 30 times. I've read it 150 times. I've never seen this. I was so completely, I was such, I was so completely a woman of that generation. I, mean, I, I remember that where you would, where you would just not. I would just accept, I was treated like, I was really treated at MIT like I was like the only woman. I mean, I was a woman who would just make the dinner, and um, and not even a good one, Sherry. Frank. Not even a good one, and there was no way to change it. And I thought to myself, "This will come up in a conversation, <laughs> and it's no. like this." And I and I think it's kind of interesting. I mean, the book the book is is is. I have to be, the book shows my empathy with myself. It's not, it's, it's not, tar, it's not tarted up. It, I don't tart up who I was in this and, book. And you don't put your today self into no. that time. No, I don't, I don't. And I tell a story even earlier, I tell a story of, you know, now I'm a pretty socially, let me say socially adept person. I mean, I, I you know, I don't like, I still don't like cocktail parties. I never have, but I'm comfortable. You know, I mean, I'm able to function in different social situations. And I tell a story about being so lonely and isolated and um, awkward at, at my first year at Radcliffe that people thought I was a thief because I was so, because I, I was the girl, I was the girl who used to come into girls' rooms and ask for change for the Coke machine because I couldn't think of any other reason to come in yeah. to make conversation. And that so was pe- painful, Sherry, to, oh. you know, cause I kept thinking, okay, when you leave Brooklyn, you go to Radcliffe, you're gonna be with all your intellectual peers that it would be, there'd be a, a real sense of belonging and finding your people. And it, it, it wasn't that way at all. No, and I think that's an important, I mean, I think that's why it's so important that people write the stories of their lives the way they actually happened. That's why I think memoir, real memoir, not, not like- Not the spiffied up memoir. Not the, not, not the, yeah, the ones that really tell, and when you can tell when somebody's telling the truth. I call because those I, revisionist history memoirs. Yeah, I mean, the kind of, what, I mean, the, the summer before I went to Radcliffe, I think it's even more telling. I, the summer before I went to Radcliffe, I got a job to make a little money. I got a job as a, a, a drama counselor at a, at a sleepaway camp. And the head counselor 
um, tells me not to tell anybody I'm going to Radcliffe because all the other counselors are going, are going to city universities of New York or New York State colleges and I'll make everybody feel bad. So I should lie about where I'm going to college. And I was just so used to lying about everything. I know. <laughs> I was like, so I should tell everybody I'm going to Brooklyn. He says, tell you that everybody you're going to Brooklyn College. That'd be, that's the best. I'll introduce you as, as, as going to Brooklyn College. So Sherry, we're running out of time <laughs> and it would be pathetic if I have the premier expert on the impact of technology on our relationships and sense of self, we're coming out of 12 months of being utterly dependent on technology and Zoom. So is your personal experience, your observations about this past year reinforce your notion, make you think it's more nuanced than you previously thought? Or did it totally upend how you think about our relationship to technology? No, I, I think it has, um, I, I, stand with my, I stand with my observation, which is I'm no Luddite. Thank God for Zoom. I've always felt that technology is fantastic when used appropriately. We needed technology and it came to the rescue. And thank God that we had this way to connect each other. I've never said, I've never been a Luddite. The danger is, is that we say Zoom, Zooming was better than nothing. And then somehow it becomes just better. That's the danger. Mm. You know, a computer psychotherapist is better than nothing. And then somehow we get ourselves organized that Wobot or computer aided psychotherapy is just better because it's cheaper. And it's so the danger is you go from better than nothing to just better. Yeah. So and are you, are you worried? I mean, you have a, you have a term that you use, which it feels so descriptive, which is impoverished interaction. Yes. And how worried are you that there'll be too much stickiness to our reliance on technology now that's been accelerated because of the pandemic? Well, because you get used to, I'm very worried. But yeah. that's why I think we need this. That's why I'm trying to. That's another book, Sherry. That's your next book. Yes, because the danger is, is that, I mean, I think we, we, we spoke about this when we spoke five years ago, when I wrote, um, six years ago, when I wrote Reclaiming Conversation, is that you get used to impoverished interaction and you say, it's pretty good and it's more convenient. So let's do that. That's the danger is you accept Bet you accept better than nothing for just better yeah. because it's more convenient and it's friction free. When you have a conversation over Zoom and you're not in the room, you're not with the body, you, you, there are many things that can be all left. the subtleties are gone. Yes, now we are both trying at um, at 
150%, a 200% to be attentive to each other. Right. And yet it's not the same as if we were together. And we both know that, but we are really, you know, we are really working it to get the maximum out of this. But actually, in most business situations and in most teaching situations and in most people are just letting slide. Yeah. You know, you know, here you have two sort of professional conversationalists who are really making an effort to connect. Right. And in most conversational situations that I've been in this year, this is not what's happening. Yeah. People are just let it let it be as friction free as possible. Let's just let this meeting kind of happen. happen. Let it and you can get away with that. Yeah. Much more readily in any sort of um, in, in, in this kind of environment. And for many purposes, you know, a lot of one of the themes of the empathy diaries is empathy is about friction. It's about the hard question. It's about really putting yourself in somebody's, not just in their place, but in their problem. It's about commitment. It's about sticking with them. It's tough. It's understanding it's, and listening. Yeah. And it's about, it's not about liking what they say. It's not kumbaya. You know, right. that, I mean, look at all the unlikable people that I really ne needed to understand right. and live with in my head for all these years as I've been, I mean, unlikable people. But I had, that was my job to, to understand my life. I had to really understand these people and what they had meant to me and for me. But Sherry, and, that's such an interesting point that I think a lot of us get confused about where we think you go along to get along when in fact, if you're really going to get along in some substantive way, You've done the exposing of yourself and the willingness to have the hard conversations. And that's when you get along, get along in a substantive way. And I think that's what your book talks about. That's what I think. And I think that's what our country needs. So that's why I think that my book, you know, it's not, it, it really comes at a time when people need to rethink what empathy is, because empathy now is being used in such a, you know, a denatured way. Joe, ba you know, Joe Biden is an empathic president. We need empathy. No, it, it's it, it's a uh, empathy is a frictional concept mm -hmm. that really does involve giving yourself a hard time as well as giving you know as as well as understanding other people in a in a more complex way. It isn't just about, you know, getting along and getting along. And um, I, I like to say that it begins, you use the word humility in introducing me. And I, I was so moved by that because one of my big, I don't know, takeaway points that I think is so important really, really for where the country is at is that empathy doesn't begin with, I know how you feel. It begins with, I don't know how you feel. Mm -hmm. I'm listening. I'm here and yeah. I'm sticking with you. 
And, and in that incident where I, people thought I was the Holmes Hall thief, I had my first experience of someone being truly empathic Lynn, with me. Right? Her name was Lynn. Lynn. Her name was Lynn, who sat with me and explained to me, Sherry, if you, if you walk into people's rooms and keep asking them for change, they're going to think that maybe you're coming in and going to take more to feel part. And she said, but I'm going to listen to your story and figure out with you why you're doing that. And I'm going to be your friend. But Sherry, it's, it's why I use the word humility, because you are pretty unglossed in your telling about your experiences, not, not merely what might have been done to you, but things that you did that mm -hmm are not maybe your proudest moments, like the one that you talked about with your mom. And don't you think that that's what sets the stage to, for others to understand that they too can be vulnerable and still be heard and listened to and in fact benefit from that? I mean, that's the other message to me from your book. Well, that's what I hope. In other words, people say, aren't you frightened? It wasn't that frightening. Don't you feel terrible? Aren't you vulnerable? And I feel actually no. Kind of liberated, right? Well, I, I, you know, I lived all those years keeping this secret, hiding, pretending I didn't have a name. I actually, there's nothing in this book. I mean, I, I've said in this interview, well, you know, I told my mother that she had a, I mean, the thing, my do-over, my terrible do-over is that I tried to, hurt my mom at a moment when I should have been just loving her up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've done things, but I, that's part of, you know, I, I feel like we've all, um, we all need to be honest about our humanity and be as loving and um, compassionate to ourselves as we can be towards each other. So I feel, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't know if it's liberating. It's, it's just really who I am. Yeah. Um, and I think it'd be a lot better if more people were who they were. But being who you are, I think is what's liberating. You know, just being, I hate this word authentic, but it, that is what it does. Yes. Yes. It, I mean, I think that that is what, uh, I, I think that is what sets up uh, the capacity for relationship is to be your authentic self. And your authentic self has to include how you dealt with a mother who made you lie about your name. Mm. And, to, and for that to have not have included moments of childlike beating your little fists and little cruelties would not be credible, Yeah, would not be credible. And Sherry, I would be remiss to not ask the question that you have a, has your daughter turned 30 yet? Yes, yes, yes my daughter just uh, turned 30. Yes, she so, did. Uh, so you were parented a certain way. How did that inform how you parented? Oh, truth. Truth was spoken in my household. Too much truth. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see what book Rebecca writes in 30 years. 
too much truth. <laughs> too much information, mommy. TMI, <laughs> I think she would yeah. say. <laughs> truth, truth, truth above all. <laughs> well, Sherry, speaking of truth, I want to um, thank you for taking the time to join me in conversation. I want to encourage, I mean, we didn't get to Paris. We didn't get oh. to your career. We didn't get to your um, landmark understanding of how we're living today. But there's the Empathy Diaries. There are all the other books that um, you've written. And I hope... I hope that um, all our listeners will not only pick up this book, but it'll make them even more curious to read some of your other books. And thank you very much for taking the time. To oh, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Sherry. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.